Well, church, happy Easter again. It's so good to be able to gather with you. Uh, and so I just want to say thanks for bringing the church uh, wherever you happen to be, in your living room, uh, in a sunroom, in a den, at your dining room table, uh, wherever you are celebrating this reality. It is so good to be able to gather, obviously under... Uh, unexpected sort of circumstances, unique unique times, certainly. Um, but what started out as a bloody Roman cross on Friday has turned into an empty tomb here on the third day. And that is the reality that we get to celebrate about how the resurrection of Jesus on this resurrection Sunday, it brings us hope. There's a living hope, and that's what we're going to explore together this morning. And so just, again, thank you for gathering. Thank you for being the church. If you're new to Crosspoint, thank you for tuning in. My name is Jamie. It's my great privilege to serve as one of the pastors here at Crosspoint, and it is my great joy to open up the word with you this morning as we look at the reality of the resurrection and how I believe it changes everything and how it speaks particularly into the time and place, the the cultural moment that we are all experiencing with the darkness, the chaos, the disruption, uh, the discouragement that uh, we're feeling right now. The resurrection breaks into that, breaks into the darkness, the kingdom of light pushing back the kingdom of darkness, and Jesus is ruling and reigning. Death did not have the final say. And so we get to celebrate that. We want to do that by looking at an amazing text this morning. But before we get into it, I want to read you a quote. Um, I read this a few years ago. It comes from a theologian named N.T. Wright in one of my uh, favorite books, particularly on the resurrection as we think about new heavens and new earth and what is, what is even the afterlife, um, but also what does the resurrection have to say, not just for someday off in the future, but like right here, right now, like with what you're experiencing. And so here's what he says. He says, it is time to wake up, to come alive to the real world, the world where Jesus is Lord, the world into which your baptism brings you, the world you claim to belong to when you say in the creed that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. What we all need from time to time is for someone a friend, a spiritual director, a stranger, a sermon, a verse of scripture, simply the inner prompting of the spirit to say, it's time to wake up. You've been asleep long enough. The sun is shining and there's a wonderful day out there. So wake up and get a life. The message of Easter then is neither that God once did a spectacular miracle, but then decided not to do many others, nor that there is a blissful life after death to look forward to. The message of Easter is that God's new world has has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that you're now invited to belong to it. That's the great hope. That is the great invitation of Easter. There's this invitation to be a people of hope. And when the Bible speaks of hope, it is not just a, a wishful, like, I hope this happens, all right? But it is this Uh, guaranteed this assuredness that we have in the resurrection makes all of that possible. And so this morning, we're gonna be in 1 Peter chapter three. We're gonna look at from verses three to 12. And so I want to encourage you in this way. If you got a Bible, if you don't have one near you, like get up, go get one of those. I want you to follow along in the text. You don't need to hear my thoughts, my opinions. We need to hear from God in his word this morning. You also can go to cpwp.life and swipe over. You'll see a card Uh, that says message notes. And so what's on the screens this morning, the text is there, all right? And so we're gonna read this, all right? We're gonna have God's word rather than me reading it to you. I have a treat for you all uh, this morning. Thank you for many who have participated uh, because we are a body, we are the church. And so let's hear from the voices of God's people in the reading of his word this morning. 
1 Peter 1, 3-12 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Bro, you have not seen him. You love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke the grace that was to come. To be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ and then was indicating when it tested beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glory that should follow. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. Thanks be to God. Well, amen. Thank you to all those who participated in that. And so that is the text we get the privilege of looking at this morning. And so as we get into it, we need the Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds, our thinking. We can't bring any sort of transformation in our own lives or anybody else's life. And so I want to invite us, wherever you are, uh, read the words with me that you'll see on the screen. And let's ask the Lord to do something in this moment, right here, right now, as you sit on your couch or wherever you happen to be. And so read these words with me. Let's, this is our prayer. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. And so what I want to explore for just a few minutes together this morning is my belief is this. What I believe the scriptures are teaching is because of the resurrection and what we see particularly in this text as Peter speaks of the hope of the resurrection, the living hope that we have, because of Easter, we can, three things we're going to look at. We can rejoice actually in hope, we can grieve in hope, and we can believe in hope, all right? And so as we get into this, let's look at the first uh, part of it. We're gonna talk about rejoicing in hope as we look at verses three to five. And so again, if you got your Bible, please turn there. And I wanna ask us to consider, like, how can we actually rejoice in hope, all right? And maybe you're feeling the weight of just the past few weeks, all right? Maybe you're like, man, it feels like the walls are closing in and it maybe is because you're like, you're in the house and there's more people gathered around and there's just, man, what in the world is happening? And so how can we actually rejoice? And I think there can be a tendency. I know sometimes when I look back and I can think of other time periods and think, well, it must've been simpler then or easier then. And even as we read these scriptures today and Peter starts out saying, hey, the call is worship. The call is doxology. The call is blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with an exclamation point. It might seem at first like, well, that's easy for you to say, like you're the apostle Peter and you had access to Jesus and you got to see him and walk with him and all this. But we need to know this, 
the reason that we can rejoice, or how can we actually rejoice, I, I want you to know that the people that he's writing to, if you were to look at the first couple of verses, he refers to this group of people as exiles. They are sojourners. They are people under great threat of persecution. Nero is the Caesar at the time, and he will start to systematically destroy Christians by crucifying them, by putting them up on stakes and lighting them on fire, all sorts of horrific things. And so the church, they live under this constant threat. And so when Peter writes these words and he says, blessed be God, he's not indifferent to pain. He's not somebody that's ambivalent towards that. He knows what it's like to suffer. In fact, he himself has been told by the Lord Jesus that he's going to die himself. He's going to give his life for the cause of Christ. And so how can we rejoice. Well, let's ask him, how can they rejoice? And so what Peter begins to do is he begins to speak to the realities and he says, you, he starts to list off some things. He says, you are born again to a living hope. So look with me again. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So can we just look for a moment at some of these promises that we see? And the apostle Peter, what he's writing to this group of people, enduring tremendous hardship, a lot of difficulty, a lot of questions and concerns, all of us. He says, you're born again to a living hope. And the reality is we our people, we are desperate for hope. If we lose hope, it becomes seemingly impossible to move forward. This past week, as I was studying and preparing for this particular sermon and studying this particular text, one of the scholars, one of the commentaries that I was reading made reference, very quickly, made reference to a particular uh, play, all right, by the existentialist uh, philosopher and, and author, Jean-Paul Sartre, all right? And he referenced this particular play. Um, now, here's what I need you to know, Okay. I'm not saying rush out and go read this. For some reason, it piqued my curiosity. Um, some stuff of his I'd read before, and I was like, oh, I wonder, I haven't read that particular play. Let me go and read that. Here, hear me now. It is not the thing to read during shelter-in-place quarantine, all right? It's called No Exit. That should have been my first cue, all right? And it's a story about three people who find themselves, all right, in the afterlife, and they are welcomed in, they are ushered into hell, all right? But hell looks very different for them than what they originally thought, all right? They're picturing like lots of fire and smoke and demons running around and torture chambers and all these sorts of things, right? It's all this cheery stuff to talk about on Easter. That's what they had expected. But as they're ushered in, they're put in this ra rather commonplace sort of sitting room, like this living room. It's got a couple of sofas and it's got a mantle and there's a few things on the mantle. But the door shuts, there are no windows, there's no way out, and it's one man and two women. And there they are. And what we begin to realize is as you read this particular play and as they begin to, they're sort of posturing at first and kind of feeling each other out and trying to, you know, a lot of pretense and things that are happening. But eventually they start to disclose more and more of their life. And there's no sleep in this place. Literally, they can't even shut their eyes. Their eyes will not close. They can't even get a moment of respite through a blinking of the eyes. It's nothing. They literally are awake forever. 
And so one of the lines that appears in, in this is this line that says, hell is other people, all right? And so I don't know if that's been, you know, you're like, hey, you, that's my journal entry from this past week. I don't know if that's where you're at in all of this, but the big takeaway from this particular play is he eventually, the author has one of the characters state this particular line as they are in this spot of just endless despair, no sleep, no access to other people, just further and further, it's just kind of this inward movement as they share their stories and it spirals into a darkness and despair. Again, not recommending go read it, but the big summation is this line, you are your life and nothing else. Now friends, that is a terrible place to be. And I wanna put before you though, the Bible agrees 100% with that observation if it wasn't for the truth of the resurrection. The apostle Paul deals with this sort of mindset, this, this logic, he teases it out and he says, if the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, like we are absolute fools, like what in the world are we doing? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, see these words here, he says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've actually perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What's Paul saying? He's saying, all right, if there's no resurrection, then you are your life, nothing else. Sartre was actually correct. This is where we're heading. And that is a place of despair and rejection and isolation like we have never experienced. And it goes on forever. But if the resurrection is true, if Jesus actually conquered Satan, sin and death by rising again on the third day, then there's a new story that we get to be part of. There's a hope that can't be taken away. And so this is where Peter is taking us in here. And then he begins to speak of, he says all of this, or he's caused us to be born again. And the idea of being born again, like, you didn't contribute to your first birth. You don't contribute to your second birth. God is the active agent. He does all of this. He brings about this living hope. And it says, through the resurrection of Jesus, that that is what changes everything. Now, I don't have a ton of time to get into this, but let me put before you three things. You see them there on the, the screen, women, witnesses, and world history, all right? Because alliteration is fun. Uh, but more than that, I want us to consider these things for a moment. Because my guess is somewhere on the other side of this camera, someone is watching this right now and they have legitimate questions and doubts. They're like, okay, I don't know. I get that Jesus is a good teacher. He's a very moral man. I understand why he's popular, but I can't commit to this idea of resurrection. And I want you to know, for one, that lots and lots of people down through the ages have wrestled with this. These are good questions. These are good things to wrestle through. As a church, we want to encourage this sort of inquiry and bring your doubts and your questions and your concerns. Like this is a place to talk about those, those things. But I want us to consider for a moment, how do we explain some of the things that had happened? And so in the time and the place, and you, you heard uh, Jessica read this as she addressed the kids, but it wasn't just for the kids, it's for all of us to hear the resurrection account and who are the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection? Who gets to see the empty tomb? Who meets Jesus first? Is it Peter? Is it John? No, who is it? It's the women that have been following Jesus. 
And I'm not saying that in some sort of sexist way. What the Bible is actually showcasing for us is in that time and that place, women's testimony, a woman's testimony was like completely discarded. It would be like, no, no, no. Oh, a woman said it. No, we can't even, we can't even believe that. It's not anything that could be like admissible in court. None of that. So if the Bible is going to make this up, if these writers are going to try and come up with this story, why in the world would they have women be the first eyewitnesses? Unless, of course, that's just how it happened. And then these witnesses, I mean, Peter, even Peter here, who's writing this letter many, many years later after Jesus has ascended. I mean, think about it. Peter would give his life. John would give his life. Every apostle, most of them would die a horrific death. Blaise Pascal once said, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. Why in the world would person after person after person propagate a lie? Wouldn't somebody at some point be like, hey, we we made it all up. But it goes on and on and on. People sacrificing everything because they knew the resurrection was true. I also think there's a responsibility on the part of us. If you got particular questions, like I said, it's good. But also, how do you explain? So just think of world history. Like, how do you explain the rise of the church? How do you explain that Christianity is not tied to one particular location or ethnic group, but is spread literally around the globe? Like, how do you actually account for that if the resurrection isn't true? Now, I don't think that just sums it up, nice little bow on it, and now you, you believe. But I would encourage you, like, consider these matters. I love the way Edmund Clowney speaks of this, about the hope that we have. He says, our hope is anchored in the past. Jesus rose. Our hope remains in the present. Jesus lives, and our hope is completed in the future. Jesus is coming. And so that is what we're celebrating here this morning. And so it informs right here and right now that you and I are part of a story of hope. It's not just your life, and then you're stuck, or it ends. Even in this time of global pandemic and all the questions and the confusion that is seemingly reigning right now, that is actually not true. Like Jesus is ruling and reigning. And Jesus right now, the apostle Peter tells us, is guarding an inheritance for us that are followers of him. Did you see that in these verses? As he talks about the resurrection, he says, all right, verse four, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Every single thing that you and I possess that we make ultimate in this world ultimately perishes, but not so this inheritance that the resurrection secures for us. Undefiled, everything in this world is tainted by sin. Everything is defiled. Nothing is perfect except for the inheritance that Jesus right now for you, even as you're feeling trapped in your home and just wonder like, where is this all heading? Jesus right now, think about this, right this very moment, he is protecting, he is guarding this inheritance for you. It's unfading. It will never diminish in its glory. It will never become old. It will never, there'll never be like, oh, there's a new release of this thing. You know why? Because what is the ultimate inheritance? You might be thinking, okay, well, is it the home I get in the new heavens and the new earth? And yes, all of those things, God preparing a place. But ultimately, it's you and I, the inheritance that we get, we get God. We get access to his presence, what we were created for. No wonder it's, it doesn't perish. No wonder it's not defiled. No wonder that it's unfading. It's God and his glory. And because of Jesus, we actually get to be in his presence. The only reason that's possible is because he gave us his righteousness, that he took our wrath, the wrath of the father that uh, we should have had poured out on us. Jesus took that on the cross. Jesus went into the grave and th- on the third day rose again, 
showing that the Father had accepted that sacrifice and that now we have access to him, not just someday off in the future, although we will in a glorified sense, but right here, right now. And so with this, with these truths, let's just look at this for just a couple of moments. I told you Peter is writing to a group of people that are experiencing trials. They've lost loved ones. They're worried about threats against their own life, the life of their their close family, friends, their spouse, their, their kids. They don't know how this story is going to play out. I mean, there is a pervasive darkness that they're feeling. And the apostle Peter speaks to this and he says, not only can you rejoice in hope, but you can grieve in hope. In fact, the scriptures invite us to grieve. So it says this, verse six, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by, by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so I'll just stop there for a moment. When Peter uses this, when he says they're grieved, what he's speaking of is like a weightiness. There's a heaviness. Like when we're grieving, right? When there's suffering, I mean, don't you just feel that weight? I mean, I'm guessing many of you feel that right now. Even if you haven't broken down and just like sobbing hysterically, there is this low grade, so there's just a brokenness, a weightiness that we feel. It's ever present. And what this pandemic has done is simply just given us eyes to see it. It's always been there. And there's this weightiness and this heaviness. And yet what Peter is doing, it's really interesting. He speaks of that, but then he also speaks of God's glory. And God's glory is also spoken of as a weightiness and a heaviness. So I want to ask you this question, like, Right now, like what is actually lifting you up? What is upholding you? And so I don't know if you remember this as a, as a kid, maybe going out to the playground. Remember those when we could go to playgrounds, right? All right. Uh, now, this, this particular apparatus, though, at a playground, if they still are allowed to have these, uh, I think would be perfect for social distancing. You know, the seesaw or the teeter-totter, right? You can be six feet apart from one another. You can go on this. Now, you know how these work, right? At the most basic level, all right, if one person sitting on one end is heavier, they will weigh it down, all right? You need to have some sort of balance. And so when you and I just look at our circumstances, the darkness, the trials, all of it, God wants us to bring it to him, okay? But I ask you, like, what's actually lifting you up? It's impossible to be lifted up unless, so you think about the seesaw, unless there's something on the other side that actually is heavier, weightier, more significant. So if you just have your trials there and you're just trying to fix things in your life, you will descend down. That's where we'll end up. That's where many of us are. But when you see the other weightiness, the glory that is God, his heaviness, his significance, it doesn't just balance things out. It absolutely like lifts you up and now you can deal with your trials and the tribulations. It doesn't mean they're not significant. It doesn't mean that God is saying, hey, hey, just don't bother me with that. No, he's inviting you to come, but he's inviting you to come in light of the story of the resurrection, that God is now lifting you up as he's lifted his son Jesus up in this ultimate hope that we have. And then Peter also says this, which I find is very interesting. He talks about these trials, right? And he speaks of it so that the tested genuineness of your faith. So I wanna ask you to consider for a moment, like, well, who is the test for? So there's these testings that are happening, right? And so maybe you've heard that, you've thought through various trials and and whatnot in, in your life. Like, what is the test happening for? Who is it actually for? Can I put before you to consider this? It's not for God, 
Like God gave faith. He knows it's genuine, all right? The testing is given so that you and I might actually know the gift that we've been given. So we might have greater clarity. So we might actually see the treasure that we have in Christ. The testing's not there for you to prove to God, ooh, I really do believe. I really do have enough faith. God, pick me, pick me, like in that sort of thing. God's the one that gives faith. God knows when it's genuine or not because he knows when he's legitimately given it. The testing, rather, is given for us so that we might be reminded, we might see afresh and anew, oh, I do actually have this gift of faith. There's this ancient practice um, in the farming communities. We now have obviously much more modern day technology. But back in the day, there was this thing called the tribulum, all right? And this particular thing, you can see that there would be behind these oxen. And it, was, it looked like a sled, basically. And it was wood, but on the bottom, all right, there were kind of these things that would, would roll a bit, all right? But there was also like metal and bone and stones kind of all embedded in there so that as they would go over the wheat, over the crop, all right, actually not ultimately crush everything, but would actually get to the grain. And now you see that tribulum, what? It's, it's where we get the word tribulation or trials, That's how the Apostle Peter is encouraging us to think about these things. In light of the resurrection, we can have hope knowing that these things are revealing, like a tribulum would get us to the grain, what is precious, to see the faith that we've been given, the salvation. So I want want to ask you to consider, like, in all of this, where are you taking your doubts and your questions? I know you've got them. I've got doubts and questions. The calling for the Christian is not to just erase all doubts and questions. The calling is... Where are we taking them? Are we trying to solve it on our own? And so when we ask these sort of questions, maybe over these past few weeks, you've asked more questions like, how could a God, if he's supposedly good, like how is he allowing this terrible pandemic and this evil and this suffering? Those are legitimate questions. My encouragement to you is this, that when you have those questions, you take those questions to the cross. And the cross is not going to answer that question for you, but the cross is going to tell you 100% what the answer can't be. And the answer can't be that God is indifferent to your pain, that God somehow doesn't care. The cross proves that he cares. The cross proves that our God knows what it's like to give up, to experience loss as he gave us his son, the son who was tempted in every way, the, the son who actually had his closest friends betray him, the one who wept over a friend dying, the one who ultimately would give his life on the cross, who left the presence of the father, the father and son and spirit living in this perfect communion. He descended down. He knows what it's like. And so the answer to the problem of evil and suffering, I mean, that's a big question, all right? And it's hard to figure out. I don't know what the answer to that is, But it certainly can't be that God doesn't care. You have to look no further than the cross of Christ and the empty tomb to know that. This is what the apostle Paul would speak of in Philippians chapter two. He says to a group of people, this church, like he speaks to us here this morning, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so as you wrestle through your trials and your tribulations and this pandemic and anything else that you have dealt with, are dealing with, or will deal with in the future, the encouragement of the scriptures, the encouragement of this passage, the encouragement of Easter is not to solve it on your own, but rather is to take your questions and take them to the cross and see Jesus 
bleeding out. See Jesus giving everything for you. See Jesus bearing the wrath that should have come down on you instead of being poured out on him. And then know that that story of death leads to resurrection, which is where Philippians 2 continues. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God, the Father. Jesus right now is exalted. Why? Because resurrection happened. And so we are invited as a people to rejoice in hope, to grieve in hope. This is what Easter teaches us. It's what it invites us into. It's possible because of the resurrection. And I'll close with this. As we look at verses 10 to 12, there's an invitation to believe in hope. Look with me at verses 10 to 12. There's a lot more in here than we have time for, but I'll just read these words. I want to comment on just a couple of things. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours They searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. Pause and consider that for a moment. He's telling us that the ancient prophets of old, as you read the Old Testament, as you read through the pages of Scripture, they wondered how this was going to play out. They, they heard Isaiah talk about a suffering servant. It's like, wait, how is that going to bring about redemption? They had their own questions, their own confusion, and they yet boldly proclaimed those words. And they weren't doing it for them so much because it never made sense fully to them. But it was being done for you that would live many, many years later. Think about that, how profound that is, that God in his care for you has been working this story of redemption They were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news, those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. What he's telling us is this. From the very beginning, there's this beautiful story that's been written. It started with us in the presence of God, Adam and Eve. There was a being kicked out of the presence of God because of the rebellion. And it's not just what Adam and Eve did. It's what I, you and I continue to do as well. The story continues to play out. I want to be God. I want to do my own thing. I'm going to choose something other than God to find my identity and my satisfaction. And yet God in his love promised that one day he would send one who would crush the head of the serpent, that he would set everything right. This is what we've celebrated this week. The cross and the resurrection. The cross and the empty tomb. And there's an invitation here as the prophet spoke of this and they had their doubts and they didn't have perfect faith. And as you read through the pages of scripture, if you're new to the Bible and you think, oh man, like I could never measure up to the people of the Bible. Hey, you should really read the Bible. Like everyone's screwed up. Everyone's jacked up and messed up. The only real hero is Jesus. All right. And he's given us his righteousness. Everybody else is a mess up. And so if you're like, I'm a failure, I don't know. It's perfect. It's for you and me, right? I mean, it's just for people that are honest with their mess-ups, honest with their rebellion, honest with the treason that we've committed against God, our King. And so there's a story here to believe and hope. And I love that it says even the angels are just like, what? Like they long to look into it. Like they're peering and they're like, God, 
what have you been doing all through human history? This is, this is amazing, and it's this multifaceted jewel that is the gospel, and it's like looking at it through this different angle as the light shines through. It's like, whoa, whoa, I've never seen that. And guess what, Christian? Forever we will be marveling, longing, looking into the depths, the riches of the gospel. And this, this morning, is the small taste of remembering the story that we're part of. It doesn't take perfect faith on our part. It's not about your faith. It's about the object of your faith. It's not about you feeling like, I've got this all figured out. It's about the God of the universe who's figured things out and he invites you to trust him. Will you believe in hope? I'm gonna close with reading this particular story. There's a book called The Second Mountain by David Brooks. And in it, he tells the story of a novelist of an author named Frederick Beekner. I find this to be incredibly profound, helpful, and I, my prayer is that it would be helpful to you. Whether you've been walking with Jesus, whether you've been a believer for a long time, or maybe you're trying to figure this out, you're exploring it, and maybe you feel a pressure like, oh my goodness, the moment I say I, I believe like that, I'll never have any doubts. No, you believe in hope, right? It's not the level, the quality of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith, and the object is Jesus, and he's really good at his job, all right? So we can trust in him. So here's how this story is told. It says, by the time he was 27, here's what's fascinating, Frederick Buechner already had published two novels under his belt. So he would fit the category of successful, certainly. He moved to New York City to try writing full-time, but it did not go well. So he ended up growing depressed and thought about other careers, maybe advertising. For no clear reason, he began attending a Presbyterian church on Madison Avenue, even though he found that most clergy preach out of their shallows, not their depths. One day, he happened to be listening to a sermon comparing the coronations of Queen Elizabeth and Jesus. And the preacher said that Jesus was not crowned amid splendor, but among, quote, confession and tears and great laughter. Beekner writes that at the sound of the phrase and great laughter, for reasons I have never satisfactorily understood, he says, the great wall of China crumbled, Atlantis rose up out of the sea, and on Madison Avenue at 73rd Street, tears leapt from my eyes as though I had been struck across the face. Beekner came to experience faith as a quest for what he called a subterranean presence of grace in the world. He came to experience it as a vague sense that life isn't just a bunch of atoms haphazardly bouncing against one another, but a novel with a plot that leads somewhere. Now here's what I want you to hear now that that is the story like his coming to faith. Here's how Brooks interacts with Beekner's writing. It says this, later in life, Beekner found himself amid young Christians who spoke confidently about God as if they talked to him all the time and that God talked back. God told them to pursue this job and not that one and to order this at that restaurant and not that. He was dumbstruck. He wrote that if you say you hear God talking to you every day on every subject, you're either trying to pull the wool over your own eyes or everybody else's. Instead, Beekner continues, you should wake up in your bed and ask, can I believe it all again today? Or better yet, ask yourself that question after you've scanned the morning news and seen all the atrocities that get committed. If your answer to that question of belief is yes, every single day, then you probably don't know what believing in God really means, Beekner writes. He says at least five times out of 10, the answer should be no, because the no is as important as the yes, and maybe more so. The no is what proves you're human in case you should ever doubt it. And then if some morning the answer happens to really be really yes, it should be a yes that's choked with confession 
and tears and great laughter. On this Resurrection Sunday, our God invites us to believe in hope. Not because we've got it all perfectly figured out, but it's as if the grace of God, it's like slapped us across the face and it said, wake up. The tomb is empty. There's a story of hope. There's a story of renewal. And you can get in on this. You're not defined by your past. You're not defined by the shame that you carry. You're not defined by circumstances, things outside of your control, the things that you even think you can control. You have an opportunity to be defined by the righteousness of Christ. Jesus posed a question to his followers after many people had scattered, like, I don't know if I can do this this ragtag group of people. And it was Peter here in the Gospel of John that gave this answer. It says that after this, many of the disciples turned back and they no longer walked with him. And so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Friends, where are you going for the words of life. Turn to Jesus. If you're a follower of him already, you keep turning. If you've never trusted in Christ, may today be the day that you turn to him, that you surrender. It doesn't mean you've got all your questions answered, that you don't have any more doubts. Again, it's not the quality of your faith, it's the object of your faith that is Jesus. How will you respond this morning? I want to encourage us as I close in prayer. Let's all confess our sins to take some time in prayer to do that. Maybe for some of you, you need to commit to believing for the first time. I would encourage you, if you're looking for even just, okay, how do I even pray that? Go to the message notes, cpwp.life, and scroll down, and you'll see a, a prayer for salvation. Something magical about those words, but it can help guide you in this. And we're gonna celebrate together by closing a couple songs that we celebrate the reality of the resurrection and the story that we're part of. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we give you praise for your work and sending your son, Jesus, that you emptied yourself. That you died the death that I deserved, that all of us deserved. You died in our place. That this great substitution has occurred. And we thank you that on the third day, Jesus, you rose again, proving that you had conquered Satan, sin, and death, and that there can be a story of hope that we're part of now. That we are more than just our life and then it's just sort of over. But there is this story and you're inviting us into it. And so with our doubts and our confusion and all of it, thank you that you welcome sinners like us, broken people, those struggling with doubts and insecurities and our own fears. God, that is me. I thank you that you've rescued me. I thank you that you continue to call me your son. God, I thank you that that offer extends to all of us. There's no pressure to be perfect. Jesus was already perfect for us. And so God, I pray that you would encourage us. Holy Spirit, would you bring challenge where it's needed and bring gospel comfort. May we respond now in celebration of praise, of worship of your name. Thank you for the empty tomb. God, I pray that you would get your glory and that we as your people would experience a great joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.